All right. Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read The End of Policing by Alex Vitale. We will be completing Chapter 1, The Limits of Police Reform, in this episode and beginning on Chapter 2. So let's knock out this last segment in Chapter 1 entitled Police Row. More than anything, however, what we really need is to rethink the role of police in society. The origins and function of the police are intimately tied to the management of inequalities of race and class. The suppression of workers and the tight surveillance and micromanagement of black and brown lives have always been at the center of policing. Any police reform strategy that does not address this reality is doomed to fail. We must stop looking to procedural reforms and critically evaluate the substantive outcomes of policing. We must constantly reevaluate what the police are asked to do and what impact policing has on the lives of the policed. A kinder, gentler, and more diverse war on the poor is still a war on the poor. As Chris Hayes points out, organizing policing around the collection of fees and fines to fund local government undermines the basic ideals of democracy. And as long as the police are tasked with waging simultaneous wars on drugs, crime, disorder, and terrorism, we will have aggressive and invasive policing that disproportionately criminalizes the young, poor, male, and non-white. We need to push back on this dramatic expansion of police power and its role in mass incarceration at the heart of the, quote, new Jim Crow, end quote. And what I want to say from this passage, I usually like to try to get through the full passage before I reflect. But what we have been seeing in, with the with the Democrats in office now, the liberals, the neoliberals in office now is trying to change the terminology, the new Jim Crow. They're trying to make these voting right laws and the repealing of voting right laws, the new Jim Crow, when for the past decade, People who are struggling against police terrorism, mass, people who are struggling against mass incarceration specifically have been calling mass incarceration the new Jim Crow because Jim Crow was something that was legalized discrimination. And mass incarceration is the closest form to legalized discrimination. The people who have the most egregious voting rights, uh, who have the, their rights as voters, the most egregiously repealed back are people who have been caught up in the criminal justice system, are people who have been victims of mass incarceration. And the people who are discriminated against in employment, the people who are discriminated against in housing, which leads to them being, which leads to their children being discriminated against in education, are people who have been victims of mass incarceration, people who have been caught up in the criminal justice system. And so I think that we have to make sure we are combating people who try to call these these voting voting laws, the new Jim Crow, uh, mass incarceration is the new Jim Crow. What we are witnessing is a political crisis at all levels and in both parties. Our political leaders have embraced a neoconservative politics that sees all social problems as police problems. They have given up on using government to improve racial and economic inequality and seem hell-bent on worsening these inequalities and using the police to manage the consequences. For decades, they have pitted police against the public while also telling them to be friendlier and improve community relations. 
They can't do both. A growing number of police leaders are speaking out about the failures of this approach. In the wake of the tragic deaths of five police officers in Dallas, Chief David Brown said, quote, we're asking cops to do too much in this country. We are. Every societal failure, we put it off on the cops to solve. Not enough mental health funding, let the cops handle it. Here in Dallas, we got a loose dog problem. Let's have the cops chase loose dogs. Schools fail, let's give it to the cops. That's too much to ask. Policing was never meant to solve all those problems, end quote. We are told that the police are the bringers of justice. They are here to help maintain social order so that no one should be subjected to abuse. The neutral enforcement of the law sets us all free. This understanding of policing, however, is largely mythical. American police function, despite whatever good intentions they have, as a tool for managing deeply entrenched inequalities in a way that systematically produces injustices for the poor, socially marginal, and non-white. Part of the problem is that our politicians, media, and criminal justice institutions too often equate justice with revenge. Popular culture is suffused with revenge fantasies in which the aggrieved bring horrible retribution down on those who have hurt them. Often this involves a fantasy of those who have been placed on the margins taking aim at the powerful. It's a fantasy of empowerment through violence. Police and prisons have come to be our preferred tools for inflicting punishment. Our entire criminal justice system has become a gigantic revenge factory. Three strike laws, sex offender registries, the death penalty, and abolishing parole are about retribution, not safety. Whole segments of our society have been deemed always already guilty. This is not justice, it is oppression. Real justice would look to restore people and communities, to rebuild trust and social cohesion, to offer people a way forward, to reduce the social forces that drive crime, and to treat both victims and perpetrators as full human beings. Our police and larger criminal justice system not only fail at this, but rarely see it as even related to their mission. There are police and other criminal justice agents who want to use their power to improve communities and individuals and protect the, quote, good, end quote, people from the, quote, bad, end quote, ones. But this relies on the same degraded notion of punishment as justice and runs counter to the political imperatives of the institutions in which they operate. There are growing numbers of disgruntled police officers across the country who are deeply frustrated about the mission they've been given and the tools they've been told to use. They are sick and tired of being part of a system of mass criminalization and punishment. This is especially acute among African-American officers who see the terrible consequences of so much that police do in their communities. Some are beginning to speak out, such as the NYPD 12, who filed suit against their department for its use of illegal quotas. Many more, however, fear speaking out. But not all police mean well. Too many engage in abuse based on race, gender, religion, or economic condition. Explicit and intentional racism is alive and well in American policing. We are asked to believe that these incidents are the misdeeds of a, quote, few bad apples, end quote. But why does the institution of policing so consistently shield these misdeeds? Too often, when biased policing is pointed out, the response is to circle the wagons, deny any intent to do harm, 
and block any discipline against officers involved. This sends an unambiguous message that officers are above the law and free to act on their own biases without consequences. It also says that the institution is more concerned about defending itself than rooting out those problems. Is our society really made safer and more just by incarcerating millions of people? Is asking the police to be the lead agency in dealing with homelessness, mental illness, school discipline, youth unemployment, immigration, youth violence, sex work, and drugs really a way to achieve a better society? Can police really be trained to perform all these tasks in a professional and uncoercive manner? In the pages that follow, I lay out the case for why the answer to these questions is no and sketch out a plan for constructing an alternative. Any real agenda for police reform must replace police with empowered communities working to solve their own problems. Poor communities of color have suffered the consequences of high crime and disorder. It is their children who are shot and robbed. They have also had to bear the brunt of aggressive, invasive, and humiliating policing. Policing will never be a just or effective tool for community empowerment, much less racial justice. Communities must directly confront the political, economic, and social arrangements that produce the vast gulfs between the races and the growing gaps between the haves and the have-nots. We don't need empty police reforms. We need a robust democracy that gives people the capacity to demand of their government and themselves real, non-punitive solutions to their problems. And then that brings us to the end of chapter one. The excuse me, that brings us to the end of chapter one, the limits of police reform. And it brings us to the beginning of chapter two. The police are not here to protect you. And that first chapter is 30 pages. And I know that spanned out through about four or five rock for reading episodes. I think that this first chapter does a great job of introducing all of the different elements that are encompassed in this book and just sort of scratching the surface of all of those different elements. And the further chapters do the good job of going into specifics on those different elements. And uh, my first time reading the end of policing, it, it, it made me question things that I had never questioned before. I had never thought about police officers not being armed with guns. I never thought about the disproportionate amount of violence that exists in American policing in comparison to policing in other countries. I had never thought about alternatives to prisons and alternatives to, uh, to, to policing. I had never thought about how prosecutors protected police officers who did these shootings. I had never thought about all the different levels of all the different I never thought about the city, county, state and federal roles, how those roles are being played on those different levels is what I'm trying to say. Uh, you know, when I see a police car, when I see a police officer, I never thought about how this police officer works for the city and how he is protected by the prosecutor who works for the state attorney and how the prosecutor who works for the state attorney is protected by the governor who worked or the attorney general who works for Illinois, the governor of Illinois and how they're protected uh, by the Senate and the house and, and all of those different things and how they all do the job, how they all work co collectively together to maintain 
this status quo that exists. I had never looked at police officers as instruments of maintaining the status quo. I I didn't the first time I read this, I didn't know some of these stories of of police misconduct and police wrongdoing that had happened. And I think that that's one of the things that that isn't that people should take away from this first chapter is just sort of a, a, a eye opening experience to all of the crevice, all of the crevices that exist in the institution of policing and how many people fall through those cracks. Uh, I had never taken the time to uh, be able to I had never been able to articulate or seen anybody else articulate how specifically and uniquely policing affects black people and people of color and poor people. And it's one of those things where once you are made conscious to it, it's hard for you to unsee it. And so that the, the limits, the limitations of policing. This first chapter of this book does a great job of illustrating. And I believe once that is illustrated, it it, it has an awakening experience on the person who views the illustration. OK, let's. You know what? Let's actually let's end this episode here. I like to do the episodes, make the episodes 30 minutes. That's usually what I do. But I want to make sure that I want to start the next episode off on chapter two. I want this to sort of be a end point of chapter one. And for those episodes that we have read before or the episodes from before today that were from the end of policing that we read to sort of all go together. And it's a lot of information that's in this first chapter. I hope that people can be able to discern and decipher through that information. And I want to thank you for taking the time to uh, listen to this podcast. I want to take you, thank you for taking the time to try to uh, add more information into your, uh, your arsenal. And again, I hope that as you read these things or hear these things or listening to these things, even if you can't get a person to listen to them or can't get a person to read this book specifically, I hope now that you can have a conversation with somebody about some of the things that we have pointed out in this first chapter of the end of policing by Alex Vitale. Okay. Uh, and I also hope that I also hope that people can get informed, not just about the, this book sort of speaks about the issues of policing in general. But I think one of the things we have to complement understanding the the issues of the police in general with is knowing the issues of the police specifically to the city that you are in, specifically to the county and the area that you are in. And those things complement each other. You need to know how to talk about the institutional issues of policing in the country of the United States of America and also talk about the the issues of the institutions of policing in the city of Rockford, Illinois, and in the city of Atlanta, Georgia, in the city of Los Angeles, in the city of uh, Rochester, in the city of Buffalo, because all of those things work together to form the bigger picture. Okay, share this on whatever platform that you're listening to this episode on. If you have not listened to previous episodes of Rockford Reading Daily, please go back and listen to that. We have read through uh, multiple uh, books here. We're trying to put together a curriculum for people to struggle against police terrorism, mass incarceration and racial injustice. I want to thank people for taking the time to listen to these episodes. It mean it, it, 
just as much as it may be helpful to you as a listener, it's helpful to me as an orator, it's helpful to me as an activist, To it's helpful to me as a, a, a writer, it's helpful to me as a reader to be able to have the opportunity to read these passages and to put them back into my own words, to read these passages about things that happen outside of Rockford and to be able to correlate them back to Rockford. And each time I do one of these episodes, I believe that uh, I I gain more knowledge and I gain more wisdom and I I gain a a better a better grasp on how to communicate these issues to people in the community. So. Share it again. Share this on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Be on the lookout for tomorrow's episode of Rock for Reading Daily. And if it's future episodes out, make sure you go check those out as well. We outside.